This episode was previously recorded and broadcast to a live audience and has not been edited for content. Please excuse any references to slides and Q&A. Thank you for joining us. Okay, good morning and welcome. Thank you so much for starting off your day with us um, here. It is, as you may know, May is Asian, Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And we can think of no better way to celebrate um, that and also end the month with than with this great panel. Um, my name's Elizabeth Cronk Warner. I have the privilege of being the Dean at the SJ Quinney College of law. My pronouns are she and hers. And as I like to do at the start of any event that we host here at the College of Law, I do like to start with um, our tribal land acknowledgement statement uh, here at the University of Utah. And we at the University of Utah acknowledge that this land, which is named for the Ute tribe, is the tra traditional and ancestral homeland of the Shoshone, Paiute, Goshu, and Ute tribes. The University of Utah recognizes and respects the enduring relationship that exists between many indigenous peoples and in their traditional homelands. We respect the sovereign relationships between tribes, states, and the federal government. And we affirm the University of Utah's commitment to a partnership with native nations and urban Indian communities through research, education, and community outreach activities. So today we have for you a wonderful discussion with two amazing panelists about a really fantastic book. And I want to tell you a little bit about our book today before I turn it over to our two amazing um, panelists. So today's book is called Minor Feelings, an Asian American Reckoning, which was written by Kathy Park. Um, and this was, again, selected in celebration of May being Asian Pacific American Heritage month. Um, she is a poet and essayist, and she fearlessly and provocatively blends memoir, cultural criticism, and history in this book to expose fresh truths about ra racialized consciousness in America. Um, this is part memoir and part cultural criticism. This is a collection. It's vulnerable, it's humorous, and it's provocative. And it's relentless and riveting pursuit of vital questions around family and friendship, art and politics, identity and individuality, and it will really help you to change the way that um, you might think about the world. Uh, Kathy Park is a daughter of Korean immigrants, and she grew up steeped in shame, suspicion, and melancholy. She would later understand that these minor feelings occur when American optimism contradicts our own reality, when you believe the lies you're told about your own racial identity. Um, minor feelings are not small, they're dissonant, and in their tension, Hong finds the key to the questions that haunt her in this book. Um, it's really a fantastic book. If you haven't had a chance to read it yet, we definitely recommend it to you. Um, it was one of Time's 10 best nonfiction books of the year. It was named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR, New Statesman, BuzzFeed, Esquire, the New York Public Library, and Book Riot. Um, it is also a New York Times bestseller and a national 
Critics Award winner. So we're really excited to have um, this book and to have our amazing panelists who are going to be talking about the book today. Um, so speaking of that, we have two panelists with us today. Um, I do want to acknowledge you may have seen Judge Uno was originally scheduled to be on this panel, but unfortunately he's unable to join us today. But do not fear or fret because our panelists are phenomenal. So kicking us off is Dean Leilani Marshall. Uh, she works with us here at the SJ Quinney College of Law, and she is our Assistant Dean of Student Affairs and also an adjunct professor. Um, after she speaks for about 10 to 15 minutes, we'll then have Raj uh, Dhaliwal, who is uh, an attorney with Ray Quinney and Nebuchadnezzar, and he too will talk for about 10 to 15 minutes. Then we'll have some time for some moderated questions and answers with me, where I'll ask our panelists a couple of questions, and then we'll open it up to you. Um, if you look at the bottom of your screen, you will see that there is a Q&A button. So if you do have a question for our panelists, go ahead and put it into the Q&A function. And you don't need to wait until the end. You can put it in at any time, um, and then we'll just be sure to leave plenty of time at the end um, to ask your questions. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Dean Marshall, who's going to kick us off. Dean Marshall. Thank you so much, Dean Cronkorner. Uh, welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us bright and early to discuss what has become one of my favorite books, um, Minor Feelings by the poet, author, and cultural critic, Kathy Park Kong. My name is Leilani Marshall. My pronouns are she, hers, and I am the Assistant Dean of Student Affairs here at SJ Quinney College of Law. I started reading Minor Feelings a couple of months ago upon recommendation from my cousin, Lindsay. She is an English professor at the University of Vermont. Interestingly, Hong finished this book way before the current heightened consciousness surrounding AAPI anti-racism efforts, but the book could not have been more timely. It is not a knee-jerk or performative response to a hashtag or a trending movement on social media. It was written organically with very familiar themes, at least for me, and very familiar inner dialogue that resonated with some of my earliest memories uh, of childhood. I'm an immigrant myself, I have immigrant parents, and there were so many themes that really resonated. Many of us who identify as AAPI have been deeply exploring our self-identity and life experience, especially lately because things we have experienced in our lives are finally under the microscope in this country. The pandemic came not just with illness, but also associated racist aspersions because of the, the virus's origins in Asian countries. But also because generally speaking, the experience of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders uh, and the hate, the recent uh, microscope on hate against these communities, has an important place in the current intersectional fight against racism in this country since the murder of George Floyd. Minor Feelings contains seven essays, each with dual meaning titles, United, Stand Up, The End of White Innocence, Bad English, An Education, Portrait of an Artist, and The Indebted. 
My co-panelist Raj and I are attempting to divide and conquer the first and second half of the book respectively, but there will be natural inflection points where themes intersect. The mood of minor feelings feels deeply personal, just like Dean Cronk Warner uh, explained in her introduction. There, there are irreverent tones, there are reflective tones, and it's searing to the point where one might feel like they're reading uh, one's own journal or an articulate version of one's own journal. My copy, which I have here, has been dog-eared and there are post-its all over and highlighted like crazy throughout. Just a couple of weeks ago, it was announced that Minor Feelings has actually been optioned for a TV show, which I'm really excited about. Um, Greta Lee will be starring and writing, and A24 will be producing. So it's, it's pretty exciting that we get to unpack this book in advance of that happening. Um, so I'm going to start with essay number one entitled United. At outset, we are set up to expect that this book will relay stories about Hong's personal experience with racial identity and united solidarity among uh, Asian Americans. But Hong doesn't leave it to biographical storytelling. In instead, she includes commentary and critique throughout, which forces the reader to reckon with Asian American identity historically and America's role in forging this identity. I will read from page nine. In the popular imagination, Asian Americans inhabit a vague purgatorial status, not white enough, not black enough. We are the carpenter ants of the service industry, the apparatchiks of the corporate world. We are the math crunching middle managers who keep the corporate wheels greased, but who never get promoted since we don't have the right face or leadership. We have a content problem. I thought this paragraph was really interesting. And like I said, searing because some of the observations felt unjust, unfair. And yet I can think of moments in my life where I felt those exact things. At one point, Hong details horrific history of Asians in America. The Chinese were first brought to replace black slaves in the plantation fields after the civil war or how they dug transcontinental railroad, or how in the mid 1800s, Chinese immigrants couldn't leave their homes without being spat at, clubbed or shot. And in 1871, a mob of people in Los Angeles who believed that Chinese men killed a white policeman tortured and hanged 18 Chinese men and boys, which was apparently the largest mass lynching in American history. The 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act was the first immigration law that banned a race from entering the US after legislators and media characterized Chinese as rats, lepers, but also machine-like workers who stole jobs from good white Americans. In 1917, the US expanded the ban to all of Asia, even restricting the Philippines, which was a former US colony. The U.S. welcomed Filipinos back in 1965. Hong surmises that this was for PR because at the time, accepting some non-whites could support their capitalist and anti-communist agenda against the Soviet Union. I identified with Hong's quiet rage in some of her stories and especially in her recounting of this history. But I also appreciated that her unique experiences were hers alone. One notable theme she brought up, which I thought was very interesting, was what she called the perpetual flight and racial self-hatred 
as natural consequences for how Asian Americans have been treated historically through today. Hong also calls out diverse range that is Pan-Asian. Everything from Pakistan to the Philippines is considered Asians. And Hong questions whether America even knows what Asian is. The compression that is happening in the name of organizing people with labels has contributed to why Americans don't seem to know much about the diversity among Asian Americans. There's so much diversity in experience, even if there are shared solidarities. I'll read another quote. It doesn't matter that Japan once colonized Korea and parts of China. It doesn't matter that Japan invaded the Philippines during World War II. It doesn't matter that there's been long, bloody territory disputes between Pakistan and India over Kashmir, or that Laotians have been systemically genociding the Hmong people since the Vietnam War. We are all conflated. We are all put in the same category, and many times uh, people just use terms to associate one group with another and conflate them all together. On page 28, uh, writer Jeff Chang writes, I want to love us, but who is us? Is it anything like the double consciousness that W.E. Du Bois established over a century ago? This term, yellow, it had a pejorative uh, connotation when others used it against us. Is it something we should embrace? Is a more appropriate and current term being called brown something that we should embrace? The term brown ascended after 9-11 to have some kind of solidarity with Muslims or Latinx communities, but all of it is inexact. If people want to taxonomize, fine, and, and Hong talks about this in, in interviews and other podcasts and things that she's been, uh, she's been featured on. But, but having this, I personally have always had this sort of anti-label because we are too diverse. Um, I do like AAPI. It's probably the most accurate label so far, but it is interesting to think about these historic terms, what they used to mean and what they could mean now if we take back ownership. The first essay wraps up relaying the story of David Dow, a 69-year-old Asian man who was dragged off of a United Airlines flight that had been overbooked. Ah, this whole time I thought the title, United, was referring to a figurative uh, unification of Asian Americans. But in fact, like this dual meaning that Hong seems to put throughout the book, um, maybe she was just talking about United Airlines. Um, we, we talk about these identity themes throughout that first essay, and it was really, it was really an interesting, interesting read and also hurtful read. Um, essay number two, entitled Stand Up, also had dual meaning. Stand Up begins with Hong watching comedian Richard Pryor's live sketch on TV. She enjoys it so much that she transcribes it, although she admits that her, her transcription is nowhere near as funny as the live version, where you can see his facials and his interactions, his outfits. She identified, as she thought through about this, um, the forum of stand-up and uh, the different ways that Richard Pryor would interact with his audience, whether it was in a self-deprecating way, whether it was also, you know, insulting the audience members. She identified this notion of audience being especially important to her, to her as an Asian American poet. 
Uh, <clears throat> she describes that as a poet, she was always fighting against this perpetual need to please um, the majority. Uh, this perpetual need to seek approval from the majority or make things palatable for the white man. It wasn't until she tried stand-up comedy herself, which is, it, it actually seems really cool that she would venture into that space, but she tried comedy herself so that she could um, challenge this notion of audience and say what she had to say. Uh, she did it for a period of time and apparently it helped her writing and the idea that she didn't have to simply please and uh, seek approval from people in her audience. She decided she would quote, write with frankness. Um, and that is, I mean, the whole book is replete with um, that uh, as being a theme, writing with frankness. Um, it was, it was, humor was seen as a survival mechanism for Richard Pryor and now um, for Kathy Park Hong as she continues as an author. In the second essay is where we learn about the title of the book, Minor Feelings. Hong describes, in Pryor, I saw someone channel what I call minor feelings, the racialized range of emotions that are negative, dysphoric, and therefore untelegenic built from sediments of everyday racial experience and the irritant of having one's perception of reality constantly questioned or dismissed. Minor feelings arise, for instance, upon hearing a slight, knowing it's racial, and then being told, oh, that's all in your head. Um, I, I wish I had a poll right now for the audience to see if anybody has experienced that before, because I certainly have experienced that level of, of ga gaslighting before. And it's, oh, it is so irritating. Um, when this happens, so often it makes you doubt your own senses. Um, and this disfiguring of senses is actually what engenders the paranoia, the shame, and the irritation and the melancholy that people feel when they're told that what they're perceiving and experiencing is not real. So th that was what I gleaned from the second essay and I thought it was really powerful. The third essay, The End of White Innocence, was immediately familiar. Uh, Hong starts out describing visualizing white childhood as this beautiful menagerie. She visited her friends whose families and homes seemed enshrined in a harmonious balance of order and play. Uh, parents spoke to each other in reasonable tones of voice. That made me laugh out loud because that doesn't always happen in AAPI homes. <laughs> and the unruly terrier who blustered into the home was given a biscuit. You know, it's like almost like a, a TV show from the 60s. She hilariously observes that this, this is not how it is in her home. Um, it was a bit more tense. Uh, it was petless and there were, were witchy sharp stenches um, and a mother who was hanging laundry outside as opposed to throwing it in the dryer. Uh, so, so really um, disparate observations that she was making even earlier on in childhood. This was so accurate and, and it had me reflecting on some of the disparities that I noticed when I was younger, even something as simple as, you know, the home lunch that I brought versus the home lunch that some of my um, friends brought to school, definitely didn't want to trade some of my, you know, like seaweed or the other things that were in, in my home lunch. 
But uh, yeah, thinking about some of those things were pretty interesting. Um, Hong also unpacks this notion of innocence. So children who are innocent. Innocence um, is an interesting concept. And she quotes a scholar named Robin Bernstein, who says, innocence is not just an absence of knowledge, but it is an active state of repelling knowledge. Innocence is both a privilege and a cognitive handicap, a sheltered unknowingness that if protracted into adulthood actually hardens into entitlement. So children are disqualified from innocence when they are persistently reminded of and even criminalized for their place in the racial pecking order. Um, she also describes that the flip side of innocence is shame. So um, she even used like a biblical reference, uh, Adam and Eve, their eyes were opened and suddenly they felt shame in their nakedness. Shame is that awareness after the innocence has peeled away. So I thought that was interesting that she um, talked about that a little bit in essay three. Hong is also uh, clear that she feels that the indignity of being Asian in this country is vastly underreported that we have been cowed by a lie, that we have it good if we keep our heads down and work hard, diligence will end in dignity. Hong thinks that our diligence will end in us disappearing. Um, that was a sobering thought and a disturbing thought, but um, again, she writes with frankness, so I appreciated her thoughts on that. Um, I'll briefly touch on, on the fourth essay, which is entitled Bad English. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but Hong talks about gutting open the belly of the English language and seeing the imperialism drop out and the colonialism drop out. Hong has described that we're in a place of deep interrogation and language is one of the areas that is important to talk about. English has been imposed on people. Hong has, uh, says that as a poet, she really explores this. Um, especially the notion that English is very fraught as a language. In one of her interviews, she said, go back to the movie Parasite, you know, um, the movie that won at the Oscars last year. Uh, listen, to way, listen to the way the upper class Korean family speaks to each other versus the lower class Korean family that speaks to each other. The upper class Korean family will infuse English into the language. I hadn't noticed that when I watched the movie, great movie by the way, um, but it's really interesting that happens. And I, and I also think about, you know, um, Filipinos, my, my family, um, Filipinos are very famous for speaking Taglish, which is a mix of Tagalog and uh, English uh, thrown together. So thinking about this concept of, of English or bad English um, infusing its way into a culture is, is pretty interesting. She also mentions food delivery service that became our normal, right, during the pandemic. Um, but she described that food delivery service exists so that we don't have to hear the voice of immigrants, uh, thereby subjugating other people and locking them out of uh, the language through commerce. The kind of English that we accept uh, according to Hong, is English in the service of efficiency, which cuts out people from immigrant populations. Um, and I, I thought that was an interesting observation. So um, I want to make sure that my co-panelist has enough time. I, I just want to comment and say that in these first four chapters, Hong is honest about her own journey 
She provides incredible critique and commentary about the why uh, in the AAPI journey. Um, for us and our allies, I think coming to understand who AAPI people are, understanding our history, um, and how we ourselves are a part of the issues. Um, basically, the work is never done. It, she she had this analogy of it's like a, a, a daily workout, basically. It never ends. Um, dealing with our internalized racism is not a one-time revelation. Um, we live in a dominant structure, and so it's deeply embedded. So I just encourage everybody to have that introspection and and take that journey on their own. Thank you. Great, thank you so much, Dean Marshall, for those wonderful and insightful comments. Um, next, we'll turn to Raj Dollywall. Um, Mr. Dollywall. Well, thank you, Dean Warner. Thank you, Dean Marshall. That was that was really great. I, I will say my approach is uh, gonna be a little bit different because I, I tried to come, you know, I thought about summarizing it kind of one by one, essay by essay. Um, but as you as you read this, there's so many points um, from the essays that you can kind of go in any direction. I mean, you touched on a, on a lot of, uh, of different themes and any one of those themes, you know, from her discussion about Richard Pryor and what that meant, um, you know, to a general discussion of, um, the way Asian Americans have been viewed in this country, particularly in the 20th century. Um, so, I mean, you could go that, and that could be the entire time. And so I wanted to, for my, you know, 10 or 10 minutes or so, uh, you know, just touch on the various points. And I thought maybe that that could help, um, you know, kind of set the table for the Q and A portion uh, of this, just because uh, a lot of this, um, yeah, when reading it, I almost thought of it, you know, particularly because I know I'm going to be speaking with you, uh, Leilani, I thought, hey, this would be fun to kind of get your perspective on, you know, what she's saying and, um, and what she's what she means, because, you know, I would read, I read several, you know, passages multiple times. And in reading it multiple times, I get a different meaning, right? There's like, peeling back um, layers of an onion. And so, you know, I would think that I, a lot of times the first read through is what I thought she was trying to say or thought she would be saying um, based off of my own assumptions. And then after reading it, you know, you realize that there's sub subplots. And so so let me get into what I'm saying. I think generally this book um, is about the human experience. Right. I know it's obviously, um, you know, specific to API or a person who, um, you know, identifies as AAPI in the United States, but there's something much more human about it, right? I mean, the whole point of the book, in my estimation, is, hey, listen, I'm here, I exist. The, the, the point of existence is a big theme throughout the book, right? Um, and then playing off of that theme is this silence, right? Um, and she uses multiple analogies from you know, a blank portrait that's being painted on to, you know, um, st a cotton stuffing um, that can be inserted into uh, my image was, you know, uh, like a teddy bear, right? Um, it's, it's as if, if you don't speak, or if you don't 
uh, provide uh, uh, your perspective, you know, that can be lost and other, you know, other forces or other institutions or other people um, can then um, provide that structure. So those are two general themes. And then the final theme that I think is important to, to hint at is just my opinion on it, which is just her vulnerability and her courage to do it. And I can, you can see her in her stories because the second half of the book, you know, this kind of gets into it, but is deeply personal um, in that it's, it's her journey as an artist. Um, you know, maybe that's, that's a kind of the best general way I can describe what the second half of the book is about. Um, but essentially she gets into uh, a lot of, you know, different personal um, relationships and personal issues that she she's faced. Um, and reading through that, I, I thought to myself, I don't know that I would be able to, to, to kind of provide that level of depth because there's, there's two things to that. One, um, you, when you make yourself vulnerable, right, you make yourself, um, in a way, you make yourself kind of exposed to whoever that third party is. But then also the, the counter to that is it, it's, it's the ultimate showing of strength, right, to kind of expose yourself. So there's, a, there's a part of the book uh, in the second half of the book where she does this literally. Um, uh, she, and she's sitting outside with her friends, um, Helen and Aaron, and she's, she, or she's sitting in an apartment in February and she's like, hey, guys, let's, let's take off our tops. And, they, and they're like, why? She's like, well, just because you know, we should love our bodies. And so she, you know, they all take their tops off and they just sit there. Um, and it ends up spiraling out of control because of, of, of their friend, Helen, who we'll, we'll get into. Um, but, you know, I just thought that that was an important part of the book that, uh, needed to kind of be said, because, you know, a lot of this is how we're generally discussing, uh, us as, uh, uh, you know, as AAPI Asians, uh, but, um, you know, I think her courage to kind of bring this out and, and so that we can have a discussion about this, um, so that we can have a voice so that we are seen and heard is, uh, is kind of an, um, uh, is, is the most important part of this and it took courage to take that step. So, um, as I mentioned, the second half of the book is about her journey as an artist. Um, and, and there are multiple themes in those relationships, but I will say that the fourth or the fifth essay education to me is as much, it's about, you know, how she's coming up and going to school um, and um, her friendships, particularly two friends, Helen and Aaron. Aaron is, um, you know, seems to be on the straight and narrow. She's had issues in the past, like anybody, but she's, she's very determined, you know, type A is a dominant personality. Um, but there's this, and she's very much in control. It sounds like she doesn't like, you know, for a lot of sentiment or emotion to get in the way. Um, at least that's how I perceived it when reading where Helen is the exact opposite. She goes from high to low. She doesn't sleep very much. Um, and, uh, and, and it's about how both of those relationships kind of intertwine with, um, with, um, Kathy and, and her relationship and, you know, there are two parts to this um, that we'll talk about. One is her relationship with Aaron seems very empowering and uplifting. And, um, and is something that, 
you know, she wants to write about. And she talks about struggling to write about her relationship with Helen because Helen is not that way. She, she talks about how imposing Helen is because Helen is also um, suicidal or, or, you know, threatens to, to commit suicide in, in multiple times. She's, she's, she flies off the handle. She's, she's emotional. Um, and in some ways is, is it sounds like a fairly selfish friend. Um, and it's something um, seems to uh, be taking as much as she gives, if not taking more. Um, and, and Kathy has a hard time explaining her relationship with Helen because what she does is she talks about how, um, you know, she did receive, um, you know, it was in her own way. She does describe it as a blessing that she had this friendship with Helen because she, as an artist would grow. And and she talks about this at the very end um, of the chapter, uh, how important it was that Helen was in her life. But on the other side, she does talk about, how much uh, worse her life was during those four years of college because of Helen. Her life would have been better off had she not known her. Those, um, that's a paraphrasing of what she says, but that's essentially the message of Helen. And so this is love-hate relationship um, with her friendship. Um, but to me, when I'm reading through this, and this is this is kind of thrown in, and this is the so that's kind of the initial layer. The second layer, when you're reading through that that essay, education, is uh, the effect that parents have on, on these friendships, right. In particular, the effect of the impact or the burden of the immigrant status on the parent and then how that ends up, um, uh, you know, impacting these relationships going forward. Um, for instance, um, you know, they talk about the tough love parenting, um, that a lot of uh, Asian Americans experience, right? Um, and, you know, there's a discussion of, um, and, you know, I think this is generally, um, or this has, you know, been true in my experience, but, you know, um, Asian American parents that immigrate here are really as worried about anything. Um, you know, I can speak to this with my own parents, but um, with, uh, you know, providing food or, you know, getting clothes on your back and making sure that you can go to school and do really well, because that's all that, you know, matters. Everything else is just kind of extracurricular, everything else, right? Whether it's sports, friendships or whatever, you know, it's, you're about to go to school so that you can be successful because we made this sacrifice. And, you know, you, um, it's important that, um, you know, that you understand that sacrifice and that you also sacrifice. Um, and, and, and the way this plays out in their relationships um, is that you have a lot of self-doubt and insecurities um, that go both ways, right? I mean, um, Aaron talks about, uh, there's this one scenario where, uh, sorry, not Aaron, Kathy is uh, having a conversation with Helen and Kathy's conversation, uh, they're going back and forth about whether or not Kathy or why Kathy will not show Helen, her poems. And Kathy said, Kathy in her head is saying, I am so insecure because you're such a dominant personality and it would kill me if you didn't love my poems. Helen is saying, and then 
Helen, and so Kathy responds, I, I don't know. I just don't want, you know, don't want to show you it has nothing to do with you. It's just about me kind of a thing. And then Helen, of course, responds, oh, you don't want to show me because you don't think I would, I'm too dumb to understand it. So then, so essentially you have two folks with two separate insecurities that are now create, you know, creating uh, friction in a relationship that neither of which is true. Right. I mean, Helen's going to love the poems and she does. Um, and Hel- and there's no way that Kathy thinks that Helen is too dumb to understand her poems. Right. I mean, th- that should already be obvious by them being friends for that long. Um, but it's not even to them at that point, they can't even trust their own relationships with their friends, you know, their friends um, for, for however long that's been. And it's partly because of um, that drive that, you know, that, um, that desire to, to be better that you're, you know, that it's not so much that you're not good enough, you know, from, from a parent's perspective, but you can always do more, you can always be more kind of a um, push. And so, um, and then I will touch on in my last few minutes, I, uh, I did want to also talk about, um, you know, this culture of silence um, and, and sexual assaults, because that's also an important part of the second half of the book. Um, and in particular, the taboo nature of sex, I, you know, among um, Asian women, I will say this with my own mom you know, sex did not come up. We don't talk about sex. It doesn't exist. Um, and so, uh, so I, I definitely saw that with my own mom in terms of how she, you know, described or didn't, you know, talk about it. Um, and I certainly wasn't bringing it up. And so, um, when it comes to, but the, you know, part of this going back, um, to how she brings this up, which is, you know, kind of ties into multiple themes is she talks about her, um, um, kind of inspiration as an artist. Um, and, you know, there we're introduced to this, this poet Cha and she is, you know, the whole point of Cha is she's obviously done so many great things and, you know, um, she's, she's renowned in her own right. Um, but she touches on this theme. She was only renowned after she died and after she dies tragically. Um, and part of her death, Cha's death, is about um, it. She, it was Cha dies, um, murdered and raped, um, and she talks about describing it that way. Is particularly using the word rape, so that the you know the word murder isn't just another statistic. Because when you hear someone get murdered, it loses its effect because you hear it so much. It's been diluted. Um, but when you add the term rape, you realize, you know, you for however long, whether it's a half a second. Um, you experience, you know, or have a, a um, an initial thought of where or how that person may have felt or what that was like near the end. Um, and the, the culture of silence here, um, you know, it's one thing about cult sexual assault because um, she talks about not discussing sexual assault because taboo because sex is taboo among uh, among Asian women in particular. Um, but with respect to um, to Cha, the the silence is that nobody, not just within the community but outside of the community, talks about her death and how tragic that death was, um, and and how that 
what the interplay there was with her identity and, and her race. And I think that's kind of the underlying theme there. Um, and then the final point that I'll, and I'll talk and I'll jump right off so we can get back into this Q and A, um, um, is this indebtedness to the parents that we, um, that I, you know, that I know I felt, uh, um, and it sounds like, you know, from the book that other, you know, Asian American, uh, Americans have felt the same way. Uh, the, the thing with the indebtedness is you do feel, and I will say this personally, you know, um, when your when your parents give everything up, because you you know I've had these conversations with with folks who you know don't have parents, you know, white uh, folks who don't have immigrants for parents, but it's a it's a huge sacrifice um, because what you're doing is you're giving up everything you know, um, everything that you care about, all the people that you know. Um, you know, your relationships, all that's given up and you're coming here to start from scratch where in a country where you don't know the language as well with people you don't know at all. Um, and, you know, even if you have an education, that education, whether it was from because my both my parents had an education in India, but they were here. It was the equivalent of a high school education. So it didn't count. Um, and so, uh, you know, that sacrifice and this was obviously the theme that was kind of touched on earlier with how that burdens those friendships, that sacrifice is something that is constant. It's not, whether it's talked about, you know, and it is talked about, but, or it's not, it's something that's always over your head um, in, in the sense that you know that you have been given a, you know, quote, a better life. And, and her point is to kind of attack that gratification or, or the, um, or the great being grateful ab about that, you know? Um, and she talks about the downside of not being grateful, but, you know, she, she talks about how liberating it is to, to kind of, you know, get out from underneath the thumb to have a more transparent conversation of what it is to be an Asian American. It's not just good enough that, you know, we, that there's an opportunity and, you know, that now we can thrive in a system, um, that, you know, that we're meant to, to do very well. In. But anyway, I'll leave it there. And then, you know, maybe we can open it up to some, some Q&A. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much again for those excellent and thought-provoking comments. I really enjoyed listening and to learning um, to, from both of you. So now we have uh, roughly 17 minutes for um, questions. I'll remind you again that we have the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen. So if you have any questions that you would like to ask of our panelists, please feel free to um, drop a question into that Q&A button. Um, and I have a question to get us uh, started off, which is um, you both did a wonderful job of examining themes themes um, and stereotypes and challenges that she raised in the book and in the various um, uh, essays and vignettes. How do you feel those potential themes and uh, challenges and stereotypes that you raise potentially impact 
both lawyers who are of Asian, Asian American or Pacific Islander identity um, in the practice of law, and then also potentially um, non-Asian, uh, Asian Pacific um, uh, lawyers who might be working with Asian or Asian American clients. So how do you see these themes potentially intersecting with the practice of law? Great loaded question. Um, as a recovering practitioner, <laughs> since I'm in academia now, I mean, I'll, I'll take my best stab at this. Um, Hong really talks about how right now things are a little bit different from when she was growing up. And I also want to acknowledge that Raj, your point about this book being about the human experience, I think is so important. It's so spot on. It's not just one uh, you know, one small story or one individual personal story. It's actually a, it's actually a commentary on America in a lot of ways and history and um, from from a unique perspective. Yeah. And so much of so much of the law, I think this is analogous to the law because so much of the law can be devoid of some of those perspectives. Uh, there's obviously very controversial discussion right now, for example, about critical race theory and, and um, those sorts of topics being infused in education, uh, perhaps even the law itself. So I think as practitioners, um, I don't know, for me personally, when she was talking about the racial self-hatred, you know, being conscious if there are too many Asians in the room and, and then feeling sort of deluded if there are too, too many Asians in the room. Um, I don't feel that. I get really excited when I say, you know, I do the nod to whoever, even if I don't know them, I'm doing the nod. <laughs> I am so excited. Um, so I think there is sort of this shift and I don't know if it's because of current events or maybe it's the influx of things like radical candor and, and encouraging people to be themselves and inhabit who they are. I love when I see um, people who are AAPI and I just, it feels like family in, in, in so many ways for me. Um, so I think that as practitioners, we've just got to be confident and, and fight against any racial self-hatred that might exist. I think we should bring our experiences to um, oral argument, to um, briefs, to the law. I, I don't see why not. It may be perfectly relevant. Um, the law, whether it's criminal law, constitutional law, whether it's property, there are racial issues within all of those practice areas. So I think it's really important to be cognizant and understand our history and understand where change and opportunity could, could exist. Um, and then the second part of your question uh, for allies, I think I think it's the same answer. I think it's really educating yourself, asking the questions uh, of of your AAPI friends, um, really trying to understand things. Um, I just think it's really important. And, and now is such a great time to have that. I'm so I feel so glad that I have children in this time um, who are who are experiencing these discussions, these very active discussions and sometimes irreverent, horribly uncomfortable discussions. It's important. And then you can create your own view. I've talked too much. Raj, what do you no, think? No, Leila, I actually don't have too much else to add except for one other point. Um, and it's more about kind of what's changed in what you were kind of touching on. Um, honestly, it's just become cool. It's a, it's the marketplace is demanding 
diversity. So it's, and it's, it's because, you know, there's lots of reasons for it, but um, see, and the corporate kind of legal environment that we are now, there's a race among law firms and just general, right? And then there's a race among, you know, different companies. Um, uh, uh, my wife has worked at multiple tech companies and she's in, you know, people strategy. So I get a sense of what's going on elsewhere and that's happening there too, you know, and um, her experiences are just in line. I mean, you can't, diversity has become, um, you know, it's in a way it's become almost a commodity, right? Um, and what we want to be able to sell as, um, especially in a market-based system, it's it's just what can we sell, right? What we care about, you know, when at the bottom line is our profit making and, you know, how do we make ourselves as popular as possible? Well, you know, on the practical side of things, you know, once you have a critical mass of folks who are demanding, um, you know, these changes and they're demanding diversity, um, you're now seeing that push. It's it's not so much, you know, now, and, and you touched on this, Leilani, with your comments um, about, you know, from, you know, that innocence, which is ignorance, to awareness, which is shame. Um, and now you're starting to, you're starting to see folks realize when they look through their roster of attorneys at law firms and they see, you know, just a list of, of folks without any, without any people of color, um, you're starting to see a, a little bit of a, a push because what ends up happening is you soon, you get one or two, and then you realize just how small of a number that one or two is. It's not, you know, and it's the point of just having those one or two, because like the point of, of, of Kathy um, Hong's book is, you know, it's the, it's the idea, it's the existence. It's you know, once your presence is felt or known or, or described or heard, now it's, it is an issue. And then just like, you know, the Adam and Eve example um, is provided, the, the exposure is, is eye-opening. It's, it's, a, um, it's an issue. And then I will say on the other side, so you have the internal kind of push, but really it, it's, it's, it's a, um, the push also comes externally, right? We have, we have big corporate clients, and I know this from other firms, same thing, and talking to, to, to friends at these other firms. Corporate clients are demanding diverse representation. Um, and that's something they want to be able to say. Again, this is we just want to all be able to say this to the marketplace. Oh, look how diverse you are. Oh, look how diverse you are. And that's essentially what it is. It's a practical matter, but it, it's also, it makes business sense at this point. Fantastic. Thank you so much for those reflections. So now I had some um, questions about the intersection of um, the Asian, Asian American, Pacific Islander community and COVID-19. And I want to acknowledge that Dean Marshall raised this at the beginning of her presentations. Um, we know that we've seen a huge spike in violence against the Asian, Asian American population here in the United States um, in response to COVID-19. Um, and uh, we've seen uh, murders of members of the community and, and certainly daily violence in addition to um, horrific verbal assaults. Um, and I do want to acknowledge that there is a website called Stop Asian Hate. Um, if you just Google Stop Asian Hate, that has a whole list of resources um, for allies to participate and help. Um, so there's that aspect of it. And then at the same time that that's happening here in the United States, we know that COVID 
COVID-19 is running rampant um, in parts of Asia, such as India. Um, I heard this morning from one of our colleagues who has family in Sri Lanka that it's devastating um, in Sri Lanka as well. Um, I know talking to one of my decano colleagues, she's lost several family members in India. Um, So many of our um, Asian and Asian American colleagues here in the States um, might be suffering profound loss and fear about what's happening in Asia right now or in many parts of Asia because of COVID-19. I'd be interested to know if you have any thoughts um, on how COVID-19 is intersecting with the Asian, Asian American Pacific Islander community, um, either from the perspective on what allies might do to help address the hate that we have seen in the past year um, and or things that allies might be able to do to better support our Asian, Asian American colleagues who might have family in Asia right now and um, uh, would be very worried about those family members given everything that's happening. Would love your thoughts on that. Raj, you go first. Okay, yeah, I'm happy to. Um, I think the number one thing uh, in relation to to the hate um, crimes that you're seeing is addressing it from allies, if if that's the question, if I I heard it right, um, is addressing the underlying issue. Right. Um, and this is the same thing what we're talking about when it comes to Asian American hate. This is the problem with those, these broad terms you're talking. You know, it depends on which group you're talking about. For instance, um, after 9-11, for folks who looked Muslim, I'm not Muslim, but I look Muslim um, to people who don't who may or may not know that. Right. And so and so uh, and so that that's a different kind of underlying cause. And so after 9-11, folks are being targeted because, you know, uh, you're thought of as an enemy, you know, you're thought of as an other, um, you know, there's an attack on the country and people that look like you or your family maybe is participating. Um, and so obviously, uh, you know, that that's not true, but people believe it. And so, um, you know, that that's one kind of aspect is the number one thing is talk about what which aspect of Asian hate or Asian hate crimes are we talking about? I think here it's pretty clear safe to assume we're talking about um you know uh in relation to coronavirus or um you know uh in particular folks who who not necessarily are Chinese but look Chinese, right? So for instance, you know, whether you're you're Filipino or Japanese or Korean, you may be lumped in. I know this, not having been Muslim, being lumped in with uh, with folks who are, who are Muslim because there was a lot of anti-Muslim hate going on, right? Um, and so, so that's the number one thing. Hate, you know. There's, and I think right now, I think that seems to be the, you know, from the information that I've seen, seems to be the kind of the main target. Um, but the other thing there is to express support, you know, bring awareness to it. When you see some of these, these videos, the thing that's interesting is it's not, it's not a white on Asian race. It can be Asian on Asian. It can be, you know, uh, black on Asian. It can be, I shouldn't say Asian, black on, you know, specific folks. And so, so, so it's, it's, uh, it's not necessarily something that, you know, you can target with one group or another, there's a lot of misinformation that's been spread. So part of that is identifying, you know, the underlying group and the underlying cause of the issue and then providing 
you know, support for that group, obviously. But number three, and the most important part is just the facts, the information, and just keep hitting people over the head with your information. That's not true. Uh, you know, the Chinese virus, as you know, some folks uh, in the previous administration were pushing, um, uh, isn't the way we want to describe it because of, of, of what those outcomes kind of lead to. So it's kind of, you know, setting the table and, and correcting those facts. Yeah, um, I think that was very well said, Raj. Um, you know, the pandemic, the pain and the tragedy associated with the coronavirus is not unique to Americans. It um, existed everywhere. My, my parents were living in Hong Kong uh, in the early stages of yeah. the virus. And um, I can tell you that it was not just tragic for many people over there, but also um, also there is this, there seems to be this natural tendency for people to subscribe blame in some way when there is something like this happening that feels out of control or is out of control. Um, uh, ignorance creates uh, those kinds of incendiary terms and, and, and terribly misappropriated um, insults about an entire community as if that community was to blame. Um, but I, but I also, um, I also agree with Raj that you just have to call it out, say what it is. The tragedy is not unique to one race. It's, it's happening to all of us. People have experienced death. People have experienced deep suffering. Um, maybe they weren't sick, but they have been in a home for a year with, uh, little kids doing home school, you know, like we, we've had this sort of collective experience over the last year and a half that um, really knows no bounds when it comes to who's to blame. Um, but when you see the footage and, and I am not going to get emotional about this, the Dean has already seen me get emotional about this, but when you see the footage of people uh, committing hate crimes against our elders, that is difficult to watch. Um, Raj talked about our complicated relationships with our elders and, and how maybe our generation of, of parenting looks different from our parents' generation of parenting who are immigrants uh, and their parents. But what we're all doing, and Hong touches this in her book, is we're all staging what we hope are good memories. When I, I mean, I didn't have bath time and story time with my mom when I was little, but I tried to do that with my little ones. Um, but what she's tried, she tried to do for me as a, a parent is stage positive memories of opportunity, um, you know, music lessons, uh, a home, uh, a mother who's there and cooks you healthy food as opposed to, you know, um, just scrounging for food in a Nipa hut in, in some remote area in the Philippines. So, so even though we are having different uh, parenting experiences, I think to heal the relationships with our parents, um, we just have to have boundaries and not instill our standards on them and, and, they, and then respectfully ask them not to instill their standards on us. It's just different. It's just evolved. It's just different. Um, but it comes from the same space of love and justice and, and all the things that we're hoping to do. So I don't even know if I answered your question, but I, I think it, it's fraught, it's complicated, but it is natural for people to try to blame, uh, find blame. And we just have to keep saying the things, facts, 
<laughs> uh, shared tragedy, all of those things so that we're humanizing yeah, this yeah. pandemic as opposed to, you know, pointing fingers. Great. Thank you so much. I think that's a, a wonderful note to add on that we need to humanize and remember the humanity in everyone, um, which I think ties both of your comments today so nicely together. Um, so again, a big thank you to all of you who were able to join us um, today. Uh, we're unfortunately out of time. And I apologize as I saw that we had some questions that we didn't have a chance to get to, but that's great because that just points out what a wonderful engaged um, topic this is and how wonderful wonderful our panelists were. Um, next month, June is Pride Month. So stay tuned. We will be having another Dean's Book Review focusing on issues impacting the LGBTQ plus community. I hope you're able to join us. And again, thank you for coming today. Have a wonderful day and uh, Memorial Day as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.